0: everyone, and welcome to the May 2021 episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam ishu This month, we're sitting down to talk with Dr. Brian Millman about his article in Emergency Medicine Practice on atrial fibrillation. Before we dive into that interview, I want to make a couple of exciting announcements from EB Medicine. First, if you haven't already done so. I encourage you to register for the Clinical Decision-Making in Emergency Medicine Conference this summer, June 23rd through the 27th, in Ponte Vedra, Florida. I'll be there for the live course, and I hope to see you there. But if you can't travel, there is also a virtual option. That information is available at clinicaldecisionmaking.com. It's a fantastic conference with all of the faculty who you are already accustomed to hearing from in the monthly articles from emergency medicine practice and pediatric emergency medicine practice. It will be an exciting conference. I look forward to seeing you there. Second, this summer, EB Medicine is going to be releasing its mobile app. That is fantastic news for me and I'm sure for you there is an abundance of information that can be used rapidly at the bedside in each of these articles every month. And if you've been looking forward to having it available in your pocket, it is coming very soon. So be on the lookout for that announcement from EB Medicine as well. And now without any further ado, here's Dr. Brian Millman.
1: Hello, I'm Brian Millman. I am a clinical assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I work with residents there and work at several community hospitals there i'm really excited to be on today talking about atrial fibrillation
0: brian thanks for joining us on this episode of amplify this month we are talking about the emergency medicine practice article on atrial fibrillation which you authored thank you very much for doing such a wonderful job i can't wait for the rest of our audience to look through this article and take a look at all the gems that you have listed here. Uh, let's start at the top of the list for why atrial fibrillation. Why did you pick
1: this topic? Is it really that big a deal? So yes, um, first of all, it is a big deal. Second of all, some of the motivation behind the article was, um, a lot of ED physicians in the United States seem to be most comfortable with seeing that atrial fibrillation patient, starting a rate control med, and admitting them to the hospital. It seems like this is the case more and more, and as the incidence of atrial fibrillation increases, as we have a more aging population, I worry that we're gonna fill our EDs and fill our hospitals with atrial fibrillation patients. So again, some of the motivation behind writing this article and looking at the literature that's out there was trying to see if we can send more atrial fibrillation patients home from the emergency department. It's the most common dysrhythmia encountered in the emergency department. And as I mentioned, there's increasing incidence with age. So in in patients less than 65 years old, we see a, a rate of atrial fibrillation of about 2 to 4%, whereas it goes up to 9% in patients older than 65 In the next 30 years in the United States, the prevalence of patients with atrial fibrillation is expected to double. So we already are seeing a lot of atrial fibrillation patients. I rarely go a shift without seeing an atrial fibrillation patient, and it's just gonna become more and more frequent.
0: Yeah, I am sure that I saw at least two people on my shift yesterday afternoon with atrial fibrillation. So it's definitely common. And it does seem to be increasing as the population that we're seeing is getting older. In the article, you mention atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter. So for our purposes, is this really the same disease or a spectrum of a disease? What's the distinction there?
1: So they're slightly different. Atrial fibrillation is um high frequency excitation of the atria that causes irregular atrial activity atrial flutter is also irregular atrial activity but usually regular atrial tachycardia with fibrillation that electrical activity of the atria is a bit more disorganized than the organized activity at the organized activity of atrial flutter we talk about atrial fibrillation more frequently in the article but while there are different ekg findings and different risk factors the management the need for anticoagulation the emergency department treatment all all is pretty similar between these two disease processes
0: Yeah, I can recall a time I had a conversation with a former partner of mine, someone who's now retired. So he was of a different generation, but we sat down and were debating at the time whether or not atrial flutter required anticoagulation. I was on the pro-anticoagulation side and he was trying to convince me that since it was a regular rhythm, that the thromboembolic risk was far lower and it really wasn't necessary. So for our purposes, really, ultimately anticoagulation, risk scoring, all of that stuff is the same, regardless of which of the two processes we diagnose. Is that right?
1: Yes, Um, you should apply the scoring tools that we're gonna talk about later in the podcast um, to both of these processes and anticoagulate appropriately based on scoring tools. Awesome.
0: All right. Well then let's start with, uh, how about some risk factors? What are the things that are going to predispose my 70 year old patient to actually having atrial fibrillation or flutter?
1: So hypertensive cardiac d- disease is the greatest contributor to atrial fibrillation in the United States. Um, we can break down other risk factors based on organ systems. So other cardiovascular risk factors would be vas- valvular disease, heart failure, and coronary artery disease. There's some pulmonary risk factors such as COPD, obstructive sleep apnea, tobacco use. Um, Some other chronic processes that are risk factors and contribute to atrial fibrillation would be diabetes, chronic kidney disease, chronic alcohol use. And we also have to keep acute illness and surgery in our mind for contributors to atrial fibrillation. Two more things to think about. as non-modifiable risk factors would be age, as we talked about already, and male sex.
0: So that's a quite extensive list of things that can contribute or cause atrial fibrillation and flutter. Lots of things to keep in mind, and that's probably 90% of the geriatric patients that I'm seeing will have at least one of those risk factors, if not multiple risk factors already. When we talk about atrial fibrillation, uh, there's some important elements in the the pathophysiology which you get into wonderfully in the article, uh, and I see the the discussion here about the process being irregularly irregular, which is kind of the classic teaching when it comes to the electrical activity, the excitability of the atria, the the fibrillation of the atria. Is there anything as far as the pathophysiology? when it comes to uh, timing, whether it's paroxysmal or persistent or longstanding, like these definitions, what does that really mean to us in the emergency department when I'm seeing someone
1: for an acute episode? So it probably doesn't matter all that much in the emergency department. Um, It's worth noting if a patient's in chronic AFib or if they're in persistent AFib and other treatments and attempts to keep them in sinus rhythm have failed, and so they're just always in AFib, our management of those patients is going to be slightly different. But when you have a symptomatic patient with atrial fibrillation presenting to the emergency department, trying to tease out um, exactly what category they fall under isn't going to be that important. Good, good.
0: And if they've got this uh, long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation that's been chronic forever, and they've had multiple attempts at say rhythm control in the past that have failed that's helpful to us in the emergency department because then we can almost discount that aspect of the treatment algorithm and say okay this has failed there's no reason for us to kind of go down this path again uh, unless your cardiologist chooses to do so at a later time is it is that right
1: exactly we're probably not going to be the ones to get them out of it um, if many other people have tried perfect
0: now when someone is arriving in the emergency department if they're arriving with our ems colleagues we kind of have a discussion here about pre-hospital care and what we expect or what we hope our pre-hospital colleagues are attempting to start before they get to the emergency department what are we recommending for them in that arena
1: so this section was a little tough and there is some pre-hospital literature on rate control um, some of the things I want to mention and some of the things just to think about as far as pre-hospital treatment of atrial fibrillation goes is wall rate control, um, which is usually diltiazem in the pre-hospital literature, has been studied. There's also a 2015 article in Annals that mentions the incidence of underlying illness when it comes to acute presentations of atrial fibrillation And this number can be as high as 40%. What worries me with pre-hospital management of atrial fibrillation is that many of these patients are appropriately tachycardic. And in the back of an ambulance, we don't necessarily have the time to tease out which are acute presentations of AFib as organic rhythm disease or which are appropriate responses to an underlying medical condition. I think in systems where your transport time is low, then deferring the decision for rate control to the emergency department is probably going to be a better option. In systems that have long transport times, then it's a decision that the EMS team and the medical direction team can discuss but calling for med control and um, having a little bit more of a discussion rather than protocolized treatment with the right control agent in the pre-hospital setting is going to be better.
0: Now, just to dwell on this for one moment, this is kind of an important distinction because it's not just unique to our pre-hospital setting EMS colleagues trying to determine the underlying cause for atrial fibrillation is pretty challenging, even for us as physicians. And we have multiple tools at our disposal in the emergency department, labs, x-ray imaging, et cetera, and they don't. So primarily what they have is history. And some of those historical elements they're going to use in order to make that determination are things like, have you Has the patient been ill recently, or do they have a fever perhaps? Have they been coughing? Are they short of breath? Some of those things that might point towards a secondary cause for the atrial fibrillation. And if I understood right from the recommendation here in the article, if there is a suggestion that there's a secondary cause, then perhaps immediate rate control is not a good idea and it's more of a kind of leave it alone till you get to the emergency department and we can address it with all of the other tools at our disposal is that right
1: exactly right so we're we're going to increase morbidity and mortality by trying to treat atrial fibrillation with rate or rhythm control if the atrial fibrillation is secondary to an underlying cause and that goes for the our pre-hospital colleagues, and that goes for us as well in the emergency department.
0: And practically speaking, so if I'm a paramedic in the back of an ambulance transporting a patient and it's a 30-minute drive from out in the county till we get deep into the city and the patient is having you know, rapid atrial fibrillation but is still perfusing well, If in that scenario, I choose to give them a big bolus of diltiazem, for example, and it was actually sepsis that was underlying their atrial fibrillation, then this person is going to get hypotensive, perhaps decompensate, and it's going to become a lot more complex for me in the back of the ambulance than if I had just left the rate alone and maybe started the IV fluids, for example, maybe put on some pads and just waited to see how they respond to the fluids and, and not done anything else. That's what we're suggesting if there's a history of something else going on. Exactly. Okay, good. So if you're in the, uh, I know there are some EMS colleagues that listen to the podcast and if you're there, I don't want you to take that as a personal criticism because we have the same challenge in the emergency department. We just happen to have a lot more tools at our disposal. So, uh, but there are a lot of those agencies that do have this protocolized and that's an important distinction to make. And if you can pick up on those subtle historical details that may actually serve you well. Now, once they get to the emergency department, of course, now they're in our hands. There are some historical elements we're going to look for, uh, and I think you did a really good job summarizing those in table one in the article, which is on page five. If you have access to it, it says historical elements that can help identify underlying etiology for atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. What are some of the important things we need to extract from that?
1: So we tried to cleanly put this information all in one table. Nothing in this table is novel. These are presentations of diseases that we're very familiar with. But the goal of this table is to give you some ideas of historical information to look for underlying disease processes. So things like duration of hypertension and medication management history of hypertension or chest pain symptoms and family history when it comes to coronary artery disease are looking for tremors and weight loss and heat intolerance when it comes to thyroid disease. These are the kinds of things that can really be found in table one and our most important histor- historical elements trying to key in on, is there an underlying medical condition contributing to this presentation?
0: Yeah. I found it helpful, actually, that also substance abuse is listed here. You know, That's something that most patients are not volunteering. Oh, by the way, I am a cocaine abuser, or I just used a bunch of methamphetamines, but I have been seeing, oddly enough, an increase of that kind of substance abuse in the geriatric population. And so there is still that risk factor, and that's something they're typically not volunteering to me, and I have to make a point of asking, And you list here even some of the simpler things like the medications they're prescribed uh, caffeine abuse tobacco use alcohol use certainly the stimulant substances and what's their pattern of use and has there been recent use all those things are things the patient may not volunteer so it's important to remember to ask in addition to everything else listed in that table
1: right and that that pattern of use is important in all the patients we see but here Withdrawal from some of these substances can initiate atrial fibrillation also, Um, and one of the ones that we famously talk about in the emergency department is holiday heart with alcohol use, so um, getting a good substance history is important in these patients.
0: And then, of course, we move on to the tool we always think about, which is the electrocardiogram, and on ECG, what are some of the core elements we're looking for there?
1: So these are things that are really drilled from uh, first or second year of medical school, three the last day of emergency medicine residency. And when it comes to atrial fibrillation, absence of P waves and that irregularly irregular ventricular activity are the things to look for. But some other things that can help clue you into AFib are absence of isoelectric baseline and then seeing those fibrillation waves that aren't really p waves but there's some up and down to the baseline those are those fibrillatory waves that help clue you into afib one thing i want to mention here when we're talking about ecg and afib is that the computer diagnosis that doc in the box can be wrong up to nine percent of the time so Take a second to look at these, make sure your diagnosis is correct, and don't rely on the computer interpretation when it comes to ECGs in general, but ECGs with atrial fibrillation also.
0: Interesting that that can be wrong in either direction, really. It can be that it tells you it's a sinus tachycardia when there's actually underlying atrial fibrillation, that it is just discounting as artifact from motion or vice versa. It could be telling you it's atrial fibrillation when you're looking at just frequent ectopy or something of that sort
1: right when it comes to flutter um this is another ecg that we see over and over again through training and we're looking for flutter waves that nice sawtooth appearance that usually appears best in the inferior leads the atrial rate is often 300 and then you can have any form of fixed conduction or variable conduction so four to one conduction three to one conduction when The patient has two to one conduction or three to one conduction. Those can be some more subtle atrial flutter ECGs because the flutter waves may look like a T wave than a P wave with three to one conduction. And with two to one conduction, it can be difficult to see any flutter waves since you will usually just have a a single flutter wave between each ventricular complex. One of the things that I use to clue me into flutter and these patients is if you look up at their monitor or their telemetry monitor and their rate never moves. So these patients, you'll be in the room with them and their heart rate will be 140 and you go out to sit down at your computer and their heart rate's still 140 and you give them a little fluid and their heart rate's still 140 that is usually one of the biggest things that clues me into atrial flutter with two to one conduction.
0: And that's because it's just so solidly regular there opposed to the fibrillation, which is just kind of bouncing all over the place and the monitor is reading numbers anywhere from 110 all the way up to 180 or something of that sort. Right. Fantastic. So I've gotten my ECG I've made the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. Perhaps we've gone through most of those historical elements and we've elicited some abnormalities there from the patient. Next step I've got to decide is what labs am I supposed to be getting in this scenario? What is it that you'd recommend we're checking in
1: all these patients? So my EMR has Clickbox order sets for just about everything I can think of, but there's not one for atrial fibrillation. And the reason for that is these workups are pretty variable from patient to patient. So the history matters a lot, the age of the patient matters a lot, underlying illness matters a lot um, in what your workup's going to be. Some of the labs to think about in these patients, the ECG is mandatory, but your workup can include a CBC, a chemistry, a troponin, a BNP, digoxin level if the patient was previously on digoxin, a pregnancy test in women of reproductive age, TSH, magnesium, coags, and a D-dimer.
0: And in all of that, that serial number of labs, as we're going through that list, we're kind of checking off in our mind the different disease processes that could be contributing to their underlying AFib. Magnesium and TSH are actually two of the labs that our electrophysiologists are very fond of ordering on every atrial fibrillation patient. So those two are definitely included in our protocolized order set. But some of these others are there just as triggers and available to you if you want them, like the pregnancy test. The D-dimer, we are assuming we're screening people for pulmonary embolism risk factors. And if they're low risk, we're ordering that.
1: So when it comes to D-dimer... Um there are a few studies on this in patients diagnosed with pulmonary embolism there was no change in the incident the rate of diagnosis in patients with atrial fibrillation and without atrial fibrillation there was another study that looked at patients with suspicion of pulmonary embolism and it found that atrial fibrillation was not an independent risk factor for PE So I don't recommend and I don't think the literature supports getting a dimer or a CTPE in every patient coming to the emergency department with atrial fibrillation. What I do suggest is if the patient has other reasons for you to think about pulmonary embolism, then work up the PE appropriately with Wells and PERC, if the patient is low risk, a D-dimer if the patient's intermediate risk, and a CTPE if the patient's high risk.
0: Is there similar literature to guide decision-making for when to get a troponin on these patients?
1: There is. This is a little bit harder to tease out. One, Some of the things that we do know is that troponin is prognostic in patients with atrial fibrillation. So if you have an atrial patient with atrial fibrillation presenting to the emergency department and they have an elevated troponin they have increased mortality compared to a patient without an increased without an increased troponin the incidence of new afib caused by coronary artery disease is pretty low somewhere between five and fifteen percent so it's not a mandatory test to order in every patient with atrial fibrillation. Again, if you have other reasons to suspect coronary ischemia, or if you're using it to prognosticate these patients in patient course, then it can be a useful test.
0: Good, five to fifteen percent. That's actually not as low as you might think. Some of the things we run labs for have incidences that are less than one percent. So really, five to fifteen, not that low in my opinion. What about uh, imaging. So we've done the labs, we've clicked our boxes. Now we've got to decide how aggressive am I going to get with imaging? What are my options there?
1: So imaging tests aren't that helpful in ruling in or ruling out atrial fibrillation. But again, you're going to look for some co-presentations, some underlying disease processes. You can get a chest x-ray to look for a low bar pneumonia that's contributing to their atrial fibrillation or pulmonary edema that's going to affect how you choose to manage the patient. Really, your imaging tests are going to help guide whether you think this is an underlying medical illness contributing to the atrial fibrillation or just atrial fibrillation.
0: And how about that echocardiography? Are you personally, in your practice, performing bedside ultrasound on these patients or, or using formal echocardiography at any point in your evaluation?
1: I'm not, and I don't think there's good evidence in everything we looked at to say that we need to. Um, We're gonna talk later about stroke risk factors and workup for stroke and cardioversion in these patients. And we'll mention TEE when it comes to that. But if these patients are in shock and hypotensive and persistently hypotensive, then bedside ultrasound is very useful in evaluating their shock. But as a singular test for atrial fibrillation, I'm not performing bedside echo in these patients.
0: And then we're always looking for a reason to check the CT box. But in this case, uh, if I'm not looking for a PE or even if I got a D-dimer and it was negative, really CT is not helpful unless I'm looking for the PE, right?
1: Unless you're looking for a PE, then uh, there's there's no use of CT when it comes to the workup of an atrial fib or atrial flutter patient.
0: All right. So I've got my labs. I have ordered a portable chest x-ray, and now we're on to treatment and you know, in medical school or PA school or NP school, wherever we are, we're required to go through ACLS training and ACLS training says, you know, you get your unstable patient and you're just going to cardioversion. Now that's the minimum standard we've all been taught, but really how good is that as far as treatment goes in the ED?
1: So I'm gonna bring up that Annals paper one more time and give you a little bit more detail here. The paper looked at a thousand patients presenting to the ED and 37.4% were identified to have underlying illness. So these underlying illness patients are gonna be more likely to be hypotensive and be our sicker patients who would traditionally meet that ACLS definition of chest pain, altered mental status, shock, hypotension the things that ACLS always teaches to use electricity for. But if we're cardioverting all these people who meet ACLS criteria, the second they arrive to the emergency department, we're going to cause bad outcomes.
0: So the worry here is we're going to be cardioverting septic shock or large vessel pulmonary embolism or some other complicated disaster that just happens to be presenting with committed atrial fibrillation that's not actually the reason for their hemodynamic instability. Is that right?
1: We're going to be using electricity for a patient who's appropriately tachycardic and trying to maintain their cardiac output when they have another reason that their cardiac output is low.
0: So you're telling me that someone who's actively dying from infection in front of me is not going to benefit from DC cardioversion.
1: <laughs> I don't recommend it in that scenario.
0: All right. You heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, all right. So what are my other options then? If I'm going to be a little bit more judicious about who we're going to cardiovert because there might be some historical findings there, maybe they have a fever, maybe they had uh, severe shortness of breath and they just had surgery and their legs swollen and I'm worried about massive PE as well. Or uh, in that kind of scenario, I've got someone who's critically ill but also presents with AFib. What are my options?
1: So you can try to retire... You should resuscitate a little bit first and this includes fluids and a presser if you need it um a lot of people talk about phenylephrine with atrial fibrillation because it does less to increase the tachycardia that there are that is already present and push dose phenylephrine is a option here so the dose there would be 50 to 200 micrograms every two to five minutes to try to bring up the pressure a little bit um while fluids are running Levafed is also an option in these patients. It's what we would use in that septic shock patient anyway, and it's not going to worsen the atrial fibrillation if there's no underlying medical illness and you're just taking care of a patient with atrial fibrillation. You may actually get some better coronary perfusion and slow down their rate a little bit with levophed.
0: Good. So those are tools that we're commonly using in the emergency department anyway, and use in this kind of scenario is okay. At this point, we kind of diverge and are trying to decide if we're doing rate control or rhythm control, trying to get them out of atrial fibrillation. Let's assume we're going down the rate control pathway first. What are some of our ED options for medications?
1: So metoprolol or another beta blocker and diltiazem are the mainstays of rate control treatment when it comes to atrial fibrillation. If we're still talking about the extremely sick crashing atrial fibrillation patient, and we feel like the rate of 180 is the reason that they're hypotensive and not an underlying illness, then After fluids and bringing up the blood pressure slightly with phenylephrine, that leaves some room for rate control. And oftentimes you get this paradoxical increase in blood pressure when you use an AV nodal agent. As you slow them down a little bit, you get some increased filling and increase their MAP and their cardiac output. One option here that I think a lot of us don't think of with atrial fibrillation is Esmolol. In that really sick patient it can be a really choice a really good choice of beta blocker because of its fast on off so if you start some esmolol to decrease the rate and try to bring up the blood pressure a little bit and they get more and more hypotensive then you stop it and the effects of the esmolol are gone after about 10 minutes
0: that's an excellent choice that actually you're absolutely right we we don't use very often Oftentimes I see people are comfortable giving one or the other just as their routine practice. So they're either in the metoprolol camp or they're in the diltiazem camp. But what you're saying is there really isn't good evidence saying we should use one or the other. Uh, You did mention in the article that if the patient has a history of already being on a beta blocker, perhaps that might be a good place to start. Or if they're already on oral dilt therapy at home, that might be a
1: good place to start. Yeah. In the article, we brought up that continuing a patient's previous medication may be the best acute rate control option. And there wasn't great literature behind this, um, really, just because it hasn't been studied. But it it, it makes sense. Um, continuing home therapy is always what we try to do. So in this acute situation, it's, it's helpful also.
0: Now, what do you think about bouncing back and forth? So I've given the metoprolol, it didn't work. Is it okay to just switch to diltiazem now?
1: I think when I've seen this happen, people have not reached their therapeutic level of the first agent that was tried. So um, giving a single bolus of diltiazem and then switching to metoprolol is probably going to increase the patient's hypotension more so than if you gave that bolus of diltiazem and then gave a second dose of diltiazem and continued down the same therapeutic agent pathway.
0: Yeah. So I guess that's one of the advantages I can think of for diltiazem is your therapeutic ceiling is probably a lot higher. If you're in the metoprolol camp and you're giving the five milligrams and then another five milligrams, and now you're up to 15 IV, you're going to reach that maximum available dose pretty quickly. But what you're saying is if you haven't maximized whatever it is you're giving, that's a better option than switching to another agent because you're at higher risk for complications. Things like AV block, is that what we're talking about?
1: And and hypotension is the other big one that we see.
0: Okay. And Esmolol here also is a great choice because it's so short acting. So even if you are stuck having to make a switch, if you have access to Esmolol, that might be a better choice uh, because you can shut it off and it's gone much more quickly. So that's beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. What other agents do we have at our disposal there in the emergency department?
1: So three more that I want to mention are digoxin, amiodarone, and magnesium. These all have a lot of evidence going back several years, but have fallen out of favor recently. One of the problems with amiodarone is the side effects profile, and I think EDF... ED physicians start amiodarone with the intention of that being the only time the patient gets amiodarone. But what happens with a lot of these patients is amiodarone started in the ED, continued on the floor, and then the patient sent home on amiodarone. And that's when you really have to worry about the side effect profile of amiodarone. Interesting. When it comes to digoxin, there's some increased mortality with digoxin and that's what, and It has a small therapeutic index. So we've seen digoxin use less and less and less over the years. But um, if you have a patient that's really not responding to anything else, digoxin may still be an option.
0: Good. And then you mentioned magnesium as well.
1: Magnesium, another favorite medicine of emergency medicine physicians. Um, I don't know that we have great evidence yet to suggest that we should use magnesium in all atrial fibrillation patients. The low Maggie trial was the most recent study on this and it doesn't apply very well to US populations. A lot of the medications that the patients were previously on or on in the hospital in this trial were were medications that aren't traditionally used in our emergency departments, but um, the trial did find a little bit more successful rate control using magnesium in addition to some other medications. What we recommend after looking at all of the literature is treating a patient with magnesium if their potassium is low, but not using magnesium as an individual therapeutic agent to attempt rate control.
0: Good, so use magnesium to supplement either a low mag level or a low potassium level, assuming that the mag is also low but not just starting it as primary rate control or rhythm control. Correct. Awesome. And then what about the rhythm control category? So when I'm trying to decide, do I just control the rate or should I be trying my best to put this patient back into a normal sinus rhythm? What are some of the things I need to be aware of there?
1: So when I talked about motivation behind this article and I wanted to um, present some strategies for getting patients home rather than putting them in the hospital, this was my big question. And it comes out of a survey article that was done in 2012 in academic emergency medicine. There were just over 1900 emergency medicine physicians that responded to the survey and this was an international population. And 94% of US physicians said that they use rate control always or most of the time, compared to 66% of Canadian physicians that use rhythm control always or most of the time. And that preference for rhythm control was true in the United Kingdom and in Australia as well. So I think there's this huge hesitancy to go to rhythm control um, when it comes to US physicians. And over the next few minutes, I'm going to try to present some data, um, that makes us less reluctant to use rhythm control.
0: All right. Make me a believer. (laughs) Let's do this.
1: The preference for rate control, um, comes out of these articles in the early two thousands that everyone's heard of and everyone's read affirm and race and the problem with these trials is they weren't done in emergency medicine populations and they looked at long-term outcomes. So the preference for rate control there really doesn't apply to our patients. Some of the factors that are going to favor rhythm control, and when we're talking about rhythm control, we're talking about either pharmacologic or electric, and that's what we'll go to next. But some of the factors that favor rhythm control are patient preference. Um, patients who are highly symptomatic, any patients that have had difficulty achieving rate control in the past, left ventricular dysfunction, and then acute presentations. And so the number you always hear is less than 48 hours. And that's still true. There are some guidelines that have challenged that 48 hour number a little bit. And the reason is there was a finished study, that looked at different time points. And patients that presented with less than 12 hours of symptoms had a 0.3% rate of thromboembolic events compared to the 24 to 48 hour symptom time point. Those patients had a 1.1% risk of thromboembolic events. I want to point out those numbers though. We're talking about around 1% or less risk of thromboembolic events. In my mind, prior to looking at a lot of this literature, if I was going to cardiovert someone for atrial fibrillation, I thought they were going to have a 1 in 2 risk of stroke or something like that. And we're talking about a rare, rare, rare complication of rhythm control. Is this,
0: in that study, these were patients who had this complication who were not anticoagulated before?
1: So this study looked at 2400 plus patients and none of them were anticoagulated. All of them underwent cardioversion and out of the entire study, so we looked at a couple of time points, but out of the entire study, the risk of thromboembolic complications was 0.7%. That's pretty low. I, I I we do need to mention here that these were patients that reported symptoms less than 48 hours. So it looked at everything up to the 48 hour time point.
0: Okay. So in the ideal scenario, and this is, you know, if I could name or create my patient, this is someone who has a history of prior AFib, who knows exactly when they go into AFib because they're very symptomatic. They say, I can tell, and they... I have a smartwatch with EKG feature that says, I could tell you I was in a normal sinus rhythm. I check it all day, every day. And at six o'clock, 12 hours ago, I felt my palpitation start and I did another EKG on my smartwatch and it was an AFib. I know I've been in it less than 48 hours. I'm on Eliquis. I don't want to be in the hospital. I've taken my metoprolol. I've taken an extra dose of my metoprolol. I haven't converted yet. And I'm just asking you to shock me. That is probably the ideal scenario.
1: So that's a patient that I would have zero hesitation cardioverting. But even if you take out a few of those things that make it easier, like take out um, the anticoagulation history in this patient, then it's still a patient that you have a good idea, has been in atrial fibrillation for 12 hours. And that's a patient that we really shouldn't have any hesitation cardioverting.
0: So if we get a little bit more gray with the case, now they're not anticoagulated, they don't necessarily have a smart device with EKG capability, but they have been in AFib before and each time that they've been symptomatic with it, they've been able to present somewhere. The question that might come up would be, okay, could you have been in AFib for a longer period of time and just not felt it because the rate was lower and now You feel it because the rate went up and that is addressed really in that study population, you think, or did they do any other investigation to parse that out or is that even relevant?
1: So that's, that's an answer that we're still, we still don't know for sure. Um, That patient is the one that many of my residents and colleagues always ask about that, that question that we all ask, how do we know this actually is 12 hours of symptoms or 24 hours of symptoms and not that the patient's been in AFib for five days. And every time they're tachycardic, they feel symptomatic. And every time they're not tachycardic, they feel nothing. Um, But when you look at these studies, both the one I mentioned and many other studies that have been done on non-anticoagulated atrial fibrillation patients, they don't have patients with devices. These patients aren't on telly. They don't. This was done before the big Apple watch studies. And so I I think the last thing you said was, does it even matter? And I'm not sure that it does even matter because we're looking at very low rates of thromboembolism and all of those types of patients were included in these studies.
0: Good. I think that's actually a very helpful differentiator there that even in these studies, they did not consider that and patients still had less than a 1% thromboembolism risk in that scenario. That's, that's very helpful. So as we're risk stratifying the patient in front of me, and we are thinking about proceeding down this route, are we anticoagulating them before converting them with electricity? Or is that something we're going to do when they go home? Is there any literature to support that decision?
1: The literature is a little bit mixed on this. And the guidelines are actually a little bit mixed on this. And the guidelines are kind of going back and forth on this. Awesome. So if you want to be on the safe side, yes. Um, Anticoagulation for four weeks following cardioversion, no matter what the patient's thromboembolic risk is. Um, The other option is if they're a very low risk by CHADS-VASC to withhold anticoagulation following cardioversion.
0: Is there any rationale for actually withholding anticoagulation other than just, I'm worried this patient's going to have some bleeding consequence? I think there seems to be a pretty decent body of literature and now even just experience with some of the oral anticoagulants people use at home. They seem to be relatively safe. And my common practice has been just to anticoagulate people and to make that the default, as opposed to something that I have to kind of push myself into. I always assume I'm going to anticoagulate them unless the CHADS-VASC says otherwise or the has bled score is too high and we've stumbled upon some risk factor. What's the guidance in that kind of scenario, you think?
1: But- my opinion and my practice is to do the same to anticoagulate all patients following cardioversion regardless of their thromboembolic risk
0: all right so then let's get into the scoring so we have now an objective method to quantify what their risk is for a complication and also what their risk is for poor outcome from being anticoagulated that's the the it's actually two scoring systems right the the CHAS CHADS-VASc score, as well as the HasBled score. Is that right?
1: Correct. So we initially had CHADS2. We've moved to CHADS-VASc, especially in the United States. Um, there, there are guidelines in Canadian physicians that are have continued using CHADS2, but most U.S. physicians are more comfortable and have continued using CHADS-VASc. Um, this is a scoring system to evaluate for stroke risk in these patients. And initially, that last S in Chad's VASC was female sex. Since this tool has was initially developed, um, the thought about female sex being an increased risk factor for stroke has changed. And so the cutoffs for your low, high, low, intermediate and high stroke risk Um, are different for males and females if you're using sex as one of the points in your CHADS-VASC So males with a CHADS-VASC of two or higher and females with a CHADS-VASC of three or higher are high risk and they should all be anticoagulated. Um, If in males with a CHADS-VASC of one and females with a CHADS-VASC of two, Those are intermediate risk patients, and those are your patients who I would lean towards anticoagulation in, but you should probably have a conversation with them and and say to them, you're at a little bit higher stroke risk. You're not at a super high stroke risk. What are the activities you do? Is there anything that you do that prevents you from being on an anticoagulant? Would you be okay starting an anticoagulant? Things like that and um, using shared decision-making to address their risk of thromboembolism versus their their willingness to start anticoagulation. And in males with no rest, risk factors based on CHADS-VASC and females with just that one point for sex, then those are low risk and those are patients that don't require anticoagulation. Okay. When it comes to the has-blood score... What the guidelines are recommending, and what the guideline, the way the guidelines really want us to use this score is as a tool to evaluate for and address bleeding risk factors, but not a reason to withhold anticoagulation. So, AFib patients in general have a four to five times increased risk for ischemic stroke. And when you're looking at the has blood score, there's a lot of overlap between that and the CHADS-VASc score. So if if you have these patients who are high risk for bleeding, they're also gonna be very, very high risk for stroke. So the reason the guidelines make these recommendations of not withholding anticoagulation is this is the population that's probably going to have an ischemic stroke over the next few years and should be on an anticoagulant. So the ideal use of HAS-BLED is to address some of these modifiable risk factors and prevent a future bleed in these patients rather than to withhold anticoagulation.
0: And th- interestingly, the HAS-BLED scoring system doesn't specifically state anything about uh, frequent falls balance disorders those kinds of things so it's a good place to start but if you're having a conversation with a patient with a known gait instability who falls all the time that's that's not accounted for in the scoring system but something you really should bring up when you're talking about shared decision making with the
1: patient correct
0: okay so we've talked about rhythm control with electricity and anticoagulation and just to touch on it briefly, there is an option for chemical rhythm control. So there are medications you can try and administer that are not rate control agents to try and flip someone into a normal sinus rhythm. Is there really much role for this in the
1: emergency setting? So cardiology has a lot of tools in their toolbox here. Most of them are medications that we're not familiar with. The one medication, there are a few medications that we, Um, mentioned in the article, and we mentioned some of the literature behind them in the article. But the one medication that I want to mention here is procainamide. And the reason is we have a lot more familiarity with procainamide, and many of us are using procainamide more than we're using something like varenoclant. So I think there is a role for pharmacologic cardioversion. When we're talking about procainamide, it's between 52.2 and 58.3% effective in cardioverting someone in the emergency department. The advantage of electrical cardioversion is it tends to be faster. It tends to be slightly more successful. So in a couple of studies, one had 96% success with electrical cardioversion. Um, There was another study that reported 100% success with cardioversion in patients less than 40. So your ED lengths of stay are going to be a bit lower. If you use electrical cardioversion, your success is going to be higher with electrical cardioversion. But um, if you're worried at all about sedating the patient or giving some of the medications that we use with electrical cardioversion using something like procainamide first, there's about a one in two chance of success.
0: And now this pathway becomes particularly important in one of the cases that's actually listed in the article itself, which is the young person who comes in with a wide, complex, irregularly, irregular rhythm that looks like a fib, but is very wide. And you have consideration for WPW and now all of those agents that we previously talked about beta blockers and diltiazem are off the table really
1: right really important Ah. case to bring up um that young person with wpw in the setting of atrial fibrillation is someone that is not going to do well with av nodal blockade so what we're really looking for is that orthodromic wpw um, and the EKG we included in the article, please take a look if you can, but it's that um, wide complex, irregular rate of, I think it was 234, that very fast, bizarre looking EKG that um, really needs to be fixed in your mind when you're taking care of these patients, um, because that's the that—that's the do not miss diagnosis um, in patients with atrial fibrillation. Procainamide is the drug of choice or electrical cardioversion in these patients with WPW in the setting of atrial fibrillation.
0: And interestingly, we're still applying the CHADS, VASC, and HASBLED scores even to this population to decide once they leave, if it's successful, whether or not they leave with anticoagulation. Right. Excellent. So that's rhythm control and rate control, anticoagulation, labs, ECG, imaging, everything packaged together. You did spend some time in the article talking about what you turn to be a wait and see approach. Tell me more about that.
1: I think this is something that's getting a little bit more traction at some programs. The important thing... The important thing to mention here is that this has to be a coordinated effort with cardiology. So in patients that present to the emergency department in atrial fibrillation, if they present in atrial fibrillation that has been present less than 48 hours and they're scheduled for next day cardiology appointment, at that follow-up appointment, 69% are back in sinus rhythm without any rhythm intervention in the emergency department. This was also done at University of North Carolina, and their study showed that 63% were in sinus rhythm at that next day cardiology appointment. So many of these patients, if we really don't do any rhythm control intervention, are still going to end up in sinus rhythm 24 hours later. The problem is, what if they don't? Yeah. So. If you're able to coordinate care with a cardiologist and have the patient seen the next day, this is definitely an option in systems where next day follow up or cardiology follow up in general is difficult, then these other approaches should be favored.
0: Now in the wait and see approach, we're talking about no rhythm control but we're still performing appropriate rate control. We may still send them home on metoprolol or oral diltiazem and anticoagulation for this 24, 48 hour follow-up with cardiology.
1: Right, rate control to improve symptoms primarily and with next day cardiology.
0: Okay. Interesting that it's actually that high. That's that's quite a large number of those patients. So in systems where you have those resources, that's actually a very viable thing to do. Now, disposition ultimately out of the emergency department is going to be dependent on which of these pathways we choose. If we elect for a rate control option and we end up on something like an IV infusion of diltiazem, that's a pretty obvious admission. But what Other things should we be considering when we're trying to decide, okay, can this patient go home or not?
1: We'll go back to the underlying medical condition here. Obviously, if there's an underlying medical condition that um, requires the patient to stay in the hospital for workup of that or for IV antibiotics or for surgery, then those patients need to stay in the hospital. But if we've ruled that out and we have a pure atrial fibrillation patient um, who has who is now in sinus rhythm after your rhythm pathway workup and treatment in the emergency department, those patients can go home. Additionally, patients who you have gone down that rate control algorithm for and are symptomatically better and have close cardiology follow-up, those patients can go home as well. All of these patients should be sent home with appropriate anticoagulation as we discussed.
0: And there's an excellent pathway on page 22 of the article that summarizes practically everything we've talked about today from their initial presentation through that decision-making into the algorithm for rate control. Uh, There's another one uh, on the next page, 23 for the unstable patient. And so I highly encourage you to go and look at both of those protocols, keep them in your pocket, pull up your handy dandy pocket calculator, and start using the Chad's VASC and the HasBled scores. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time to both write the article and to talk to us on the podcast. I found it exceptionally helpful. And again, This is published online, ebmedicine.net. It will be in your mailbox if it hasn't already arrived for the month of May. I highly encourage you to go and take a look at those published pathways and the tables. It really is an outstanding article. So thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was good talking to you.
0: And that's a wrap. Thanks so much to Dr. Brian Millman for joining us and for writing the outstanding article on atrial fibrillation. I highly encourage you to go read through the entire article. And don't forget to go to ebmedicine.net and claim your CME for it. Also, don't forget clinicaldecisionmaking.com. That's the website where you could register for the conference this summer, June 23rd through the 27th. I hope to see you there in person. Until next time, I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Be safe.